Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. In 2013, I interviewed Joe Scheuer, an expert in disaster risk reduction at the United Nations Development Program. I asked him what disaster scenario around the world he feared the most. What kept him up at night? This is what he said. One that personally keeps me up, uh, if you like, at night, or the one that I fear at least most, uh, is an earthquake in Kathmandu Valley, where uh, we're just waiting for it to happen, basically, uh, although a lot of work is going on to, again, minimize it, but it's, it's, it's the big one. If there's an earthquake of the strength of Haiti, uh, predictions that could be anywhere between 250 to 400,000 people that are dead, uh, and a nightmare scenario in terms of recovery because of access being very limited. Haiti, you could so that was two years ago, and on Saturday, a massive earthquake, even more powerful than Haiti, struck Nepal. And the damage, while immense, is not as completely catastrophic as the 250 to 400,000 deaths that Joe Scheuer predicted as the nightmare scenario back in 2013. So I caught up again with Joe Scheuer this week, right before he left for Kathmandu. I wanted to know, how was it that his nightmare scenario seemed to have been avoided? His answer was really interesting. It was basically a combination of good luck and preparation. The challenges ahead for Nepal are monumental. This was a really big earthquake striking a very poor country, which is always a terrible combination. But it could have been much, much worse. Uh, So I come away from this conversation with a newfound appreciation for the role of disaster risk reduction in international development, and I think you will too. So here it is, my conversation with Joe Scheuer of the United Nations Development Program. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, there's a really simple explanation, which is that, uh, thankfully, uh, the epicenter of the earthquake was west of Kathmandu Valley and and far enough from the valley to uh, not have these catastrophic predictions come true. Uh, Of course, the situation in the districts uh, appears to be extremely bad. Um, But uh, luckily, as far as Kathmandu Valley is concerned, it was sufficiently far away uh, to uh, not have this catastrophic scenario come true. The flip side of this really is, of course, uh, that it also demonstrates that the catastrophic scenario actually is relevant because with the amount of damage we see in the valley right now, having had the epicenter so far, would it have been right under the valley or very close to it? Uh, you can imagine what would indeed have happened. And you might recall we talked about in the, bad, uh, in, the in the worst case scenario that landslides would uh, cut off the road access to the valley, that the airport would not be operational. And those two things, for example, have not come true, uh, fortunately. What has been done over the last couple of years to 
reduce the risk of Kathmandu Valley to this catastrophic scenario? Well, quite a lot on one hand. We, we've had for a number of years now a very uh, deliberate program in place, uh, about 15 or so, I forgot the exact number now, but let's say about 15 partners under the leadership of the government. Uh, which has been running for a few years now, what's called the Nepal Risk Reduction Consortium. Uh, and against five uh, flagship areas, um, we've been uh, supporting the government to get ready. So a couple of points, like things that are relevant for the discussion today, I can point out one flagship area is retrofitting schools and hospitals. And you will see that uh, those buildings that have been retrofitted would have been, would have been okay. Uh, another area underway there is a deliberate effort to work on community-based disaster risk reduction and preparedness activities uh, so that district-by-district district or communities uh, are ready for such an event to the extent, of course, where you can be ready for it. The flip side to this is that uh, after decades of building up risk in terms of a housing stock and infrastructure that is not up to code, it takes many, many, many years and enormous amount of money to actually retrofit everything. Uh, and so this is why you still see uh, considerable damage. Uh, so basically you're saying that, you know, an influx of migration to the Kathmandu Valley, um, you know, caused a construction boom. And most, if not all, of the new housing over the last 10 years was not necessarily, you know, earthquake proof. You've had a construction boom for well over a decade in the valley, and it is a simple fact. I mean, one estimate is that 90% of the stock of the housing stock is not is not up to standard. And here, of course, there's two main factors. One is simply an issue of affordability for many of the poor people, uh, and you know, poverty. Uh, um, you can you know you can say it breeds vulnerability as well because people are not able to build the kind of shelter or housing that would uh, be up to standard. And then you have an, an element of weak governance where good building codes are not enforced. Uh, and those two factors really combine to uh, the current situation that so many of the buildings are not, are not earthquake-proof. Do you know if any of the buildings that have been retrofitted through the work of the consortium, if they've been able to withstand some of the damage from the earthquakes? We have some anecdotal evidence now that, we, of course, uh, those buildings are fine. Uh, for instance, the hospitals seem all to be operational. I mean, they're obviously um, suffering heavily under the influx of patients, but, you know, they're operational. Um, but in terms of a specific example, I would have to get back to you. I would need to check in with our guys on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's been really too recent right now into the initial response to draw clear lessons and double check, you know, the investments versus the, versus the damage. It's certainly something we're going to do. Um, but the you know the hard and fast evidence that you need, I don't have that right now. Obviously, the goal right now is to get relief, food, water, shelter to the people affected by the earthquake. But over the long term, how do you approach rebuilding efforts? How do you you know as the saying goes, build back better? And how do you avoid some of the pitfalls that have accompanied the Haiti rebuilding experience? Okay, well that's a really really key uh, key question, and um, for those of us that uh, are thinking now uh, over the overall recovery period, I'm mean, talking about many many years now. You know, it's very much at the forefront of of uh, of our thinking. So let me start answering this as follows: as as you know, perhaps misplaced it sounds four days after the event, we need to look at this as an opportunity. Uh, Nepal has uh, had a risk profile, um, the reasons that we, we know about, uh, and that risk profile, of course, is still relevant. 
there is a hope that this event, as bad as it has been, and um, uh, you know, there's no consolation for any of the affected, uh, uh, you know, families, populations, entire villages, and so on. But here we have an opportunity to change uh, the way Nepal goes about its business. Uh, one hope, and to avoid uh, what you refer to in terms of Haiti, is that we need crystal clear government leadership and government coming together and see an opportunity here to actually lead the country onto a different path. We know that the country, of course, is coming out of uh, a long process in terms of its peace process. Um, but that clear in terms of government leadership required recovery is one key ingredient that we need. The second issue is that we articulate a vision, a long-term vision, that doesn't just go about right now in rebuilding the roads and the bridges and some of the public buildings, but actually puts together a comprehensive recovery program that looks particularly at underlying risk factors in terms of vulnerabilities with poverty, in terms of livelihoods, in terms of other kind of service uh, delivery, that it will allow us to build resilience um, in the communities, the villages, and of course in the city. And for that, we need development partners, be they multilateral, bilateral, or NGOs, to really go into Nepal. You know, all assistance is 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 going to be required. Um, you mentioned, you know, is it sexy to retrofit buildings? No, it is not. And on top of that, it's more expensive than building up to standard right from from the get-go. In many cases. Um, it's going to be terribly expensive to to get this recovery funded. So everybody's help is required. But people need to come in, respect local ownership, respect government leadership, and work well together in the interest of what we leave behind and not work isolated from each other uh, and just deliver the particular program that they have been able to raise money for. That will require tremendous coordination and self-discipline from all the partners and something I think the NRC, the Nepal Risk Reduction Consortium, will hopefully prove as the right framework uh, to build on, you know, it's been in place now for a few years, to actually make a compact between development partners and government and to really put, uh, put Nepal on a sustainable course. Um, so, so this idea of disaster risk reduction seems to have gotten or seems to be gaining a, a lot of traction and a lot more traction in, in recent years than in the past. I know there was this big conference in Sendai, Japan, just a few weeks ago, focusing on, on this very issue of, of, of disaster risk reduction around the world. Could you, I guess, talk about places or governments, local or, or national governments that are doing this very well? Uh, allow me to preface that. I'm going to give you uh, a few examples, but let me preface this uh, talking about the broader context for the, uh, uh, as you mentioned, we just came out of the World Conference for Disaster Risk Reduction, which was held in Sendai, Japan last month. And the national community has agreed on a new framework for action, the Sendai Framework for Action for the next 15 years. And that's a major deal because we've been really able to to uh, learn from the last 10 years uh, and put a framework together that takes us more than one level forward. Can you just unpack that? Because, because, you know, for non-UN people, like the term framework doesn't really mean a lot. Can you talk about what that means in, in a little more granular detail? Sure. Fair enough. I'm sorry for falling. No, into it, the, happens. Uh, it happens. It happens. It's easy. It's easy um, to fall into development speak. I know. Yeah. Look, I mean, to, to, to break it down more simply, disaster risk reduction globally has not been a priority. The global community, on, on average, has not invested in preventing disasters, has understood disasters as a humanitarian issue to which you respond after it happens, 
as opposed to clearly understanding that it is development decisions that create the risk and it's a development issue. In other words, if I build a school that's not earthquake resistant, that's not the earthquake's fault, it is the non-compliance of building codes that has led to it, therefore it's a development issue. Disaster risk reduction has been totally underfunded over the last, you know, 10 years. Um, only about 12% of global expenditure on disaster risk in terms of the national uh, development assistance, I'm not talking about national budgets, only 12% of the money we've invested, roughly $100 billion, has gone into prevention. And over the last two years, we've spent a lot of uh, um, uh, efforts in the national community to change that, to make sure that all development in the future is risk-informed. We have a nice little tagline where we say, if it is not risk-informed, it is not sustainable development. So we have to make sure whenever a school is built, we understand the risk, the flood risk, the earthquake risk, the cyclone risk, whatever kind of risk you might, you might be facing, and invest from the get-go in mitigating that risk or preparing for that risk. Uh, so therefore, all development assistance has to be risk-informed. And in Sendai, uh, we had, for example, two major breakthroughs, let's say, uh, in the new framework that we didn't have before. One is extremely relevant for Nepal right now because out of four priority areas in this new framework, uh, so basically uh, it sets priorities for the global community against which we will invest to make sure that globally we are better prepared, we have more disaster resilience. And out of these four priorities against which countries will be also reporting against, one for instance is recovery. How do we do recovery well? How do we take advantage of a recovery process over several years to truly build back better? And the second priority area, for instance, is uh, what we refer to as risk governance. Now, what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is to understand, again, what I said earlier, that development decisions need to be risk-informed. When building codes are not respected, it's a governance issue. It's an accountability issue. You have collusion between builders and the people that build, or you have bribing of inspectors, or inspectors, building inspectors don't show up, or the government doesn't have the capacity to monitor all of the development, because there's too much. All of those issues are governance issues. And the community has now, the community has now recognized that we have to invest in that. By doing development right, we will prevent disasters in the future. Now, to the examples, if you still want to hear those. Sure, sure. All right. Um, so while on average the picture is kind of bleak uh, globally, uh, there's a number of countries that have done exceedingly well. Uh, and let's not forget to start with Nepal. You know, we've known this, we've, we've recognized it, and we've put this consortium together. And uh, the task is just so much bigger, and we ran out of time, right, uh, with this event that came to be truly better prepared. But if we stay in the region, uh, take two countries, take India and take take Bangladesh. Bangladesh has become extremely good in dealing with its yearly flood risk and moving lives, livelihoods, assets, and even livestock out of harm's way when big floods happen or when a cyclone hits the country. And the numbers in terms of casualties uh, has gone uh, dramatically down uh, in similar events if you look over the last 30 years of cyclones in Bangladesh. Similarly, in, in India, which has had one of the largest risk reduction programs over the last 10 to 15 years, that's done extremely well in terms of preparedness at every level. And just look at the example of Orissa, where I had a cyclone in, nine, eight, in the late 90s, where uh, something about 10, 12,000 people uh, uh, died, and we had two uh, equally strong super cyclones over the last three years. 
and the casualties were only about 30, 40 people. So there are examples where we've delivered uh, um, leadership from government at every level, and as required in those countries where it is needed, you know, international support, and really working hand in hand with the communities. It is so critical because the communities are the first responders. Before anything else or anybody else kicks in, it is the community itself uh, that, uh, that will respond. So we need to really, really have that compact between the communities and all government structures to move this forward. And it can be done. Indonesia is another example. Mozambique has done well on floods. Uh, Cuba has done extremely well on local governance issues uh, throughout the country in Cuba in terms of hurricane risk. So we have great examples to build on. We just need to come together and invest in the right way. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks you know, for making the time. I know it's obviously very, very busy for you. But no, no, again, thanks pleasure. so much. Thank you to Joe. Thank you all for listening. I'd encourage you to donate to the Nepal relief efforts. I'm going to donate to the UN Central Emergency Response Fund, which is this kind of standing pool of money, a contingency fund, really, for when a disaster like this strikes. It can quickly release funds for groups like UNICEF and the World Food Program, which are always strapped for funding. Uh, And this now contingency fund needs to be replenished. So I am going to give to that, and I'll put a link up on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, thanks all, and we'll see you later. Bye.